Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 69. Michael O'Brien is a survivor of one of the most emblematic miscarriages of justice in Britain. Known as the Cardiff Newsagent 3 case, it has become a key point of reference for campaigners against injustice. He spent 11 years in prison before his conviction was overturned. He lost not only his freedom, but everything he'd ever had including his wife, his child, and even his health. But he did gain something from his time inside, a self-taught knowledge of the law and a burning desire to help others fight for justice. He is also the best-selling author of a number of insightful books about being a victim of a miscarriage of justice, prison and the criminal justice system. Let's start here. You, alongside two other men, were accused of a murder and a robbery that you didn't commit. Your convictions were overturned 10 years after you were imprisoned. And as far as I'm aware, and from previous conversations we've had, you are continuously, despite the fact that you've had your convictions overturned, you are still pursuing other avenues. We'll get to that. Let's start with the crime itself. What What is it that you were accused of, Michael? Well, we were accused of killing the Cardiff newsagent, Philip Saunders, in 1987. You know, he was robbed of his shop's, shop's takings outside his backyard and he was brutally beaten about the head and he died five days later from his injuries. You know, I mean, it was a horrendous crime. Let, let me make that clear, you know, but we didn't do it, you know what I mean? We knew we never done it, like, you know, and uh, it was very difficult for us when all this happened, you know. But I've been out now for a number of years and I'm still thinking of the victim's family because we need to get justice for them as well, mind. And that's a really, really important point. Let's Let's start with who Michael is then. Let's paint a picture of what your life was like growing up in Wales. You know, tell me a little bit about yourself. What was what what life was like for you? What you were like up until the point of your arrest? Oh, I was a you know I wasn't an angel. I'm not going to say I was an angel because you know I lived on a council estate. You know what I mean in in the community of Cardiff. You know it's it, it's difficult to uh, get by day by day without being involved in things, you know what I mean? I don't mean serious things, but, you know, everyday things. Like, I was into, you know, allowing myself to be carried in a stolen vehicle, which is what happened on a night in question. That happened a couple of times. Uh, trying to fit in and be one of the boys, if you like, because I, I didn't feel I fitted in anywhere because I was different, because I always worked and I always done this. I was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. So, you know, he's trying to please both camps, if you like. You know what I mean? The goody two-shoes, not trying to get into trouble, but in the same token, you know, fitting with the boys as well. And obviously it cost me dearly, didn't it? You know, it cost me 11 years and 43 days of my life because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
So up until the point that you were arrested of this, the most serious of crimes, murder, what um, previous convictions did you have? I mean, what was the most serious thing you'd been arrested and charged with up until that point? I didn't have no convictions at all. That was a extraordinary thing. I didn't have no convictions whatsoever. And I still don't to this day, you know, by the skin of my teeth, I must admit. But, um, you know, I haven't got no previous convictions whatsoever. So I wasn't known to the police for any violence or any wrongdoing in that sense. So it makes it even more difficult for me to understand why they homed in on us you know if I was on the radar as somebody said to me well you must have been on the police radar well no I wasn't on the police radar you know what I mean that was the thing if I would have been on the police radar and been in trouble before and in and out of court I could understand them maybe targeting me I'm not saying I was right but this is the way they work this is the way they operate you know what I mean and this is what I found out with some of my friends who were in trouble with the police if you are on the radar then, they, you know, there is a possibility that you could get tucked up for something you haven't done, although I didn't realise that at the time. Take me back to the day that you were arrested. You know, what were you doing at the time? Was you expecting to be arrested? Just take yourself back and me back and the listeners back to to the time that you were arrested and just walk me through what happened and how you felt at the time. Well, I can remember it was the 1st of November, 1987, where we had a knock on the door. I was down my sister-in-law's house with my wife at the time. Uh, I was sleeping on on a makeshift bed, and I heard bang, 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 bang on the door, and we wondered what what the heck was going on. The next minute, you know, the doors come through with numerous officers. They, they come steaming into the front room. There was police officers surrounded the house, you know, the front, the back, and everywhere, and they said to me, are you Michael O'Brien? I said, yes. Uh, oh, we're, we're arresting you on suspicion of murder. And I went, Do you, um, Philip Saunders. And I said, who the effing hell is Philip Saunders? Didn't recognise the name or anything. I didn't know the man, you know. So I was really taken back. And bearing in mind, I was only 19 at the particular time. I've never been in a police station other than as a victim. That was it. So it was shocking. It was shocking. You know, I didn't I come up with the blue. I did not expect that to happen. You're taken to the police station, and at some point you go through a series of interviews, I, I suspect. What did you discover during those interviews, and how did you respond to those interviews? Because people often think that those that are guilty say no comment, those that are innocent talk as much as they possibly can to try and establish their innocence. What was the experience like for you? Well, I was treated quite appallingly uh, at Canton Police Station in Cardiff. I was handcuffed to a hot radiator for long periods of time, denied access to a lawyer. I mean, they were coming in and out of the uh, interview room saying basically that they knew we had done it and uh, I was going to get 20 years and they should bring back hanging for people like you. I was absolutely terrified. They denied us food and water whilst we were in the police station as well. These are basic human rights we hear about in other countries, but not in Britain. But yeah, it did happen in that particular police station. I mean, I gave my interviews and I told them, none of us done this crime. We were all innocent. And then, you know, it transpired after 14 different interviews, my co-accused turned around and said that my other co-accused, Ellis Sherwood, was responsible while he was the lookout. And I mean, if you looked at his evidence, uh, we didn't know this at the time, but he had confessed to something he hadn't done before. But the, but the police knew about this and didn't disclose it to any of us or the, or at the, ju- the jury never heard, heard uh, about that either. And... I told, I told them we didn't do it. I said, we were out stealing cars on the night in question, you know, and I allowed myself to be carried in a stolen vehicle with the boys. But that's all we were up to. We did not kill Philip Saunders. And I, and I kept on saying that. I said that all the way through my statements, that we did not do it. I was steadfast, even though the pressure they were putting on me to implicate my co-accused, Ellis Sherwood, saying what they were saying to me, like, playing good cop, bad cop. You know, the good cop would come in and say, well, you don't want to. Mr. Bad Guy to come in and give you a hard time and then Mr. Bad Guy would come in if you don't admit that Ellis Sherwood was the one who done it, you're going to go down as well you're going to get 20 years and this is the behaviour of the police officers in, in the station I've never seen anything like this in my life and yeah I was absolutely terrified in that police station make no mistake about that Now we're talking about 1987 um, and at this point there was no 
I don't know, protections for people like you who were in police custody, because if I'm right in thinking the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which um, requires the police to tape record interviews and later on video record interviews in order to protect both the police and suspects like you, none of this was in place, or if it was, it wasn't being used during your interviews, which you say allowed them to abuse you verbally in the way that they, they did. Is that what was happening at this point? That's exactly what happened. Now, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act uh, 1984 came into force in 1986. So by the time we were in, um, in our 1987, we were arrested, it should have been used and it wasn't used. And the reason why it wasn't used, because there was a, from what we've got known since, the police were very much against the Police and Criminal Evidence Act because they thought more criminals are going to get away with crime, when in fact it was there to protect vulnerable people and to protect the police as well. So, you know, from, you know, accusations of wrongdoing. But I'll give you an example. There was 115 breaches of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in my case. That is astounding. That cannot be a mistake. You know, one or two, you know, that was a fragrant abuse of my human rights to be, you know, denial of access to lawyers, denial of access to the outside world. And bear in mind, I hadn't been found guilty or charged with anything, and yet I got treated worse than real criminals. And I, and I don't get that. I really don't get it at all. The issue around the Police and Criminal Revenue Acts is, is one thing, but you're in the police station, you're being interrogated by good cop, bad cop, and during those interviews, you're denying any involvement in the murder and robbery of Philip Saunders, the news agent. But one of your co-defendants, so there were three of you, am I right? There were three of you who yes, were in the police was, station at the time yes, was. Being, being questioned. Yes, that's correct. And during the interviews of one of the other guys, Darren Hall, I believe, he confessed to the crime and put you and your other co-defendant, Ellis, in the frame. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. But what you've got to remember was Darren Hall was a Walter Mitty character. He had a personality disorder, and it was very difficult for me to explain to the jury. But I'll give an example how I tried to explain it. I called him a bungalow because you could clearly see that he had nothing upstairs or nothing downstairs. And I explained to the jury, well, I, I'll be quite frank with you, I said he had fuck all upstairs and fuck all downstairs. That's exactly what I said um, in court, and the jury burst out laughing. But that was my way because, don't forget, I was only 19, I wasn't educated, and I'm trying to explain why somebody would confessed to something they hadn't done but unbeknown to me Darren Holland confessed to something he hadn't done before now there was 14 different statements where he implicated other people until he decided on the, the last version of events that Ellis Sherwood killed him I was there and he was the lookout you could clearly see there was serious serious holes in Darren Hall's confession if you're admitting to something you've done how is it you didn't know what the murder weapon was you know, things like that, just basic things. He said he hit him with a house brick. Uh, he was hit with a shovel, according to the police. But that and all, said he hit him with a house brick. Then he said he hit him with a stick. Then he said, no, he didn't do it. Then he was the lookout. And, I mean, he was all over the place. You could, And they couldn't have believed his evidence because after three days of being in the police station, they could have gone for extra time at the magistrate's court. They released us on bail. So if they really believed his confession... Why did they release us? So you're accused of this murder by the police. You're accused of being involved by one of your co-defendants, but you're released on bail while the police go on to conduct further investigation. And then you were rearrested, or what happened after you were released on bail? Well, we were re well. I, I nearly had a nervous breakdown. I got to be honest with you. I ended up in a mental hospital in Woodchurch in Cardiff. I just could not cope with what they what they done to me. I was so traumatized that I ended up in, in in a mental institution for a few days, and I needed medication and I needed help because I was in such a bad state. We were bailed to go to Canton Police Station. I think it was sometime in December, December the fourteenth. I think it was, but seven days later. We were rearrested again on so-called significant new evidence, which connected us to the crime. Now, that piece of evidence was a criminal who, had, who was in serious trouble with the police at the time, allegedly seen me and Ellis Sherwood in town bragging about the murder and showing him that we had money. But there's only one problem with that. 
The day he said he seen me and Ellis Sherwood in town spending the money, Ellis was arrested the night before and was in the magistrate's court and had a cast iron alibi. And yet they still used him in court. At some point, you're charged with the murder and now you're obviously remanded in custody. Is that how things transpired? Yes, I was remanded into Cardiff prison, yes. I, I, I was there for 16 months. So during those 16 months that you were on remand awaiting trial, what did you discover about the evidence that the police were building against you, the prosecution case against you? So there's already this alleged confession from one of your co-defendants, vulnerable um, co-defendants. There's this evidence from this witness who is surely undermined because, as you said, one of your co-defendants was actually in custody at the time, so that couldn't have been true. What else did you discover during those 16 months ahead of your trial? Well, whilst I was in the police station on the second arrest, me and Ellis were put in adjacent cells. And according to uh, this police officer, he was outside the cells and he reckons a conversation took place between me and Ellis Sherwood, which is highly incriminating. And he reckons he wrote it on, on the back of a wall with a, an expenses form and wrote down this confession and he put it to us that confession was a total fabrication again at the time of the trial and when i was on remand we didn't know that this police officer had done these things before so it was years later that he was going to come out about it but at that particular time we got to go on the present day and that's what they had he's and then the conversation went something like this you're talking about life I was supposed to say to Ellis Sherwood, and he was supposed to re reply, being on remand means nothing. Uh, I'll have to tell him what happened, I was supposed to have said. And he was, he was supposed to reply, don't be saying that, otherwise we'll be fucked. You know, and this conversation was put to an expert, you know, years later, and proved to be false. But at that time, we had no way of proving it. So, you know, you had the police officer's evidence, which, you know, uh, when you've got a, somebody of 20 years standing and then you've got somebody like me who was involved in, you know, allowing myself to be carried in stolen cars, Ellis had a record, Darren had a record. Who are they going to believe? They're going to believe a police officer of 20 years. And that's exactly what happened. And then there was a number of other inmates who come forward whilst we were on remand saying, jail snitches, as they used to call them, you know, they were in serious trouble with the police and they reckon we confessed to them what Ellis Sherwood did. And then the, there was five witnesses, the police officer and Darren Hall saying what he did. And that's basically all the evidence. There was no forensic evidence linking us to the crime because we wasn't there. And another significant piece of evidence, we had an alibi where we were at the time of the murder. We were three miles away at a social worker's house. She was told not to go to court and she didn't turn up in court as our witness. And after we were found guilty, she was wondering what was going on. And, you know, we used her at the appeal you know, years later. But at that particular time, the police told her to keep away, that she wasn't needed. My solicitors didn't do a very good job of questioning the police. They missed, again, 115 breaches of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. And when you think about it, it's, it's concerning because there was three solicitors, three QCs, three junior barristers, and not one of them picked up on those breaches of the Pace Act. Well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because when you stand in the dock accused of the murder and the robbery, the jury hear the evidence and then they convict you. Why do you think the jury convicted you despite the evidence in your favour? I think they convicted us because of that police officer's evidence. I mean, you've got, we were little scallywags. Let, let's put it that way, right? You know, we, we, we know the other two done a bit more than me. I, I was just trying to fit in and I was going down the slippery slope. It's as simple as that. And who are they going to believe? A police officer who stands in the dock and said, I heard them confess to me. This is what they said. It was a highly incriminated confession. Who are they going to believe? Me, who was a, in, up to no good that night, or the police officer? And that's what swung it for me why they found us guilty. But when I was inside, years later... I went on a hunger strike, I think it was about 1990 after two years I was in, because I was in a terrible state when I got sentenced, for, you know, when I got a life sentence. My my whole world fell apart, you know. And there was a, one other incident which happened when I was on remand. My daughter died of a cot death. So I was in a hell of a state, as you can imagine. My wife walked out on me. She was only young. She was only 18. You know, everything I had, I didn't have much money or anything like that, but what I did have, all I thought I had was a good woman and my children. And you can't put a price on things like that. 
and yet all I was just ripped apart from me. The, the police even said to my wife that I was having an affair with her sister just to try and cause trouble, to try and split us up. And, you know, they've done a good job of that. That's terrible, terrible to, to hear. And I think that's one of the things people, as you say, can't comprehend the loss, not just of your liberty, but of those around you because of, of the wrong that had been done to you. Tell me a little bit, Michael, about about what it was like for you in prison, how long you spent in prison and what you did in prison to try and fight against your wrongful conviction. Well, in 1988, when we got found guilty on July the 20th, we were obviously, I was sentenced to life imprisonment, all three of us were. 1998 or 1988? 88, sorry, I beg your pardon, yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. And I was was taken to Cardiff Prison, where I then got shipped out to a place called Long Latin in Eversham, Worcestershire, which is a top security prison in one of them in the country, and... I went on a downward spiral. I found there was drugs there. I was easy to get on the drugs. I never take, I never used to smoke before I went into prison, but I ended up smoking like a trooper. I ended up taking amphetamines, a, a speed, you know, whatever I could get my hands on because I could not cope what was happening to me. And it was about 1990, just before the Birmingham Six got out and the Cowbridge Water, who were wrongly convicted themselves, they come over to me when they found out my sister wrote a, some of these people and said, listen, my, my brother's in a terrible state. He's innocent. They come to see me and they give, they give me the wake up call I needed. And they told me that I got to start getting off the drugs. What am I doing? Write to journalists, write to MPs. And I'm like, well, I've never written a letter in my life before. I, I can't read or write properly. So what I did, I knew I had a problem. I went down to see the psychiatrist and the psychologist. They helped me get off all the drugs I cleaned myself up and then, oh my God, the anger come inside me. It was like a dragon coming, breathing fire. I was not having it. I was livid. And I thought, right, I'm going to educate myself. And everybody laughed at me, you know, because I didn't have no qualifications or nothing. But I educated myself. I, I, I passed seven exams when I was in, in Long Latin and Gartry Prison. And, and then I started to fight back. I studied law. I started doing the human rights law, prison law, and I became the prison lawyer, you know, for, you know, against discipline, you know, when in the mandatory drugs testing came in, I caused them all sorts of problems because uh, they weren't following the procedures and I managed to get people their money back. They had the convictions quashed by the, you know, by the prison service headquarters. They even called in their own QC at the home office. It was just, you know, I mean, I took it to a doctor water. The most significant case for me was they tried to ban me having journalists in Long Latin coming to see me and reporting on my case. And they were interfering with a documentary maker's program about me, which later got me out. And I took them to court. I was shipped out 300 miles away so I couldn't see my family at the Franklin prison uh, up to Newcastle. But I won my case against the Home Secretary and the Governor of Long Latin Prison. I, I did have the right to have journalists come to see me and investigate my case. And although it got overturned at the appeal courts, I went to the House of Lords and the House of Lords reiterated that I was indeed in my rights. And every prisoner who was saying that a victim of a miscarriage of justice could speak to journalists on a face-to-face in the visiting room. I mean, so I made legal history there. So that's how determined I was. You know what I mean? I was really up for the fight, you know what I mean? And, and, I, and I was. And others who, like myself, were in that situation are grateful for the fight that you fought to, to allow journalists. What was the evidence um, discovered during your time in prison serving this life sentence that helped get your case back to the Court of Appeal? Well, f- the first thing is uh, Darren Hall was evaluated by a, a psychiatrist called Olive Turnstall. She was a leading expert on people who make false confessions. And she realized straight away that he uh, was uh, compliant. He he was like one of the please people. And he couldn't tell the, the difference between fact and fiction. And I mean, that report was damning. You know, so we got that report to prove the confession was false. Do you know what I mean? In her opinion, of course. So that was the first step. Then the CCRC called in. The Criminal Cases Review Commission got involved and called in an outside police force. Then we found out information from journalists that this police officer had made up confessions like the one he did in my case outside the cells in numerous other cases. And the jury called him a liar and they acquitted the defendants. So it's called evidence of similar fact. So all that was put together. We got in another expert then uh, to come in to look at Darren Hall. 
he said the same thing as Olive Turnstall. This confession is false because of X, Y, and Z. This man can't tell uh, the truth if it, if it knocked him on the head, you know. And Darren Hall then admitted after on national television, which went out on BBC Wales and BBC Two Home Ground series. I walked into the TV room and he said, I'm sorry for what I've done to Michael O'Brien and Ellis Sherwood. I only wanted something for myself. They didn't do it. And I was just, my chin just touched the floor. I was shocked that after all this time, my co-accused admitted that he framed me. He, he took part in the actual wrongful conviction. And then I started doing research on people who falsely confessed. There was the Judith Ward. They'd done it in the Birmingham Six case. And then I understood that the police mechanisms made them confess that way. So I didn't hold no bitterness towards Darren Hall. I just understood. And I was clearly up to, you know, I, 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 the blame lied with the police and the CPS at the end of the day because they knew uh, a number of things about Darren Hall which wasn't disclosed to us. Darren Hall confessed to something a few years previously and the magistrate court turned around and said to Darren Hall, you know, Walter Mitty character, you want to start living in the real world. He confessed to a number of car thefts, but at the particular time he was supposed to be stealing these cars, he was in his solicitor's office sitting down with him preparing the court case. And he gave evidence at the Court of Appeal. Just, just to be clear, Michael, well, this Darren Hall's confessions that implicated you and your co-defendant, that was false. He also wrongly implicated himself, didn't he? It's not like he's saying, I did it, and then falsely accused you. He falsely implicated himself in this confession because his conviction, like yours and your co-defendant, Ellis, were, were overturned at the Court of Appeal. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, Darren Hall was a very complex character. And, you know, it wasn't until we seen the expert's report that we understood why he may have confessed to something he hadn't done. As he said in the programme, he wanted something for himself. He wanted to be the big I am. I wanted to be somebody. This is my opportunity. So this goes to show you the mentality of Darren Hall. And I don't mean to put him down in any way, shape or form, but this is this is the reality of the personality disorder that he had and, the, you know, the, the person that he was. Now, Darren Hall wouldn't hurt a fly, you know. Yeah, he might have been done for stealing a bike and little petty things, but violence, I mean, no, not at all. And I knew he was innocent, and this is why I, I said to Ellis Sherwood, if we're, if we're going to get out, we're all going to get out together or we don't get out at all. I wasn't going to accept parole. I've told him that I refused parole. I said I'd never accept parole because that's admitting guilt. I wasn't having none of that. And I said, I know Darren Hall was innocent, and I always fought his corner. And then when he told the truth on that TV programme, which the BBC made, with the two experts' report, everything started making sense. Then we got the Thames Valley Police to investigate our case. They proved we were handcuffed to the radiators for long periods of time, that they couldn't account for our whereabouts in the police station. How can you get lost in a police station, uh, Rafa? But they couldn't find us. We were either being interviewed off the record which we were, or we were, in the, we were uh, being interviewed. Now, you couldn't be in two places at once, so what, what was going on there? And all this came about by Alan Partridge, the police officer from the Thames Valley Police. It was one of the most damning reports into South Wales Police legal history, you know what I mean, into their behaviour and everything. And I knew we were going home. So this report was was damning prior to your successful appeal, and it was used alongside the expert evidence to show that your convictions were unsafe. Absolutely, yes. That's exactly what happened. The CCRC referred our case basically on a number of issues that they didn't believe that the confession outside the cells was uh, the truth, which, which the police officer made up, because there was evidence that he had done it before. Darren Hall's confession was probably false, uh, because of the two experts, you take away those two pieces of evidence. All you've got then is the five, you know, five criminals or ex-criminals, whatever you want to call them, who give false evidence. And there was evidence there that one of them got a lesser sentence uh, for giving evidence against us. He, he requested because he helped in the Saunders murder. He wanted he was seeking redress for the crimes he was in for. So all this came together. And we also proved that one of the witnesses as well who was on remand, he was a Rule 43 prisoner. You can't, you know, Raphael, you cannot get near the Rule 43 prisoners. So how the hell are we supposed to confess to him? You can't get anywhere near them. 
No, and just to point out, a Rule 43 prisoner is either a sex offender or somebody who's on good order and discipline, and they're often isolated because other prisoners will do them damage, i.e. beat them up, or because they've grasped on someone or because they owe someone tobacco. Whatever the reason, they're yes. often segregated from all the other prisoners, so there could not have been an opportunity for this person to have had a conversation. Your convictions are quashed on the basis of the evidence we've just discussed. Tell me about what happened next, Michael, because I know what it feels like when you hear finally after 10 years, 11 years, 12 years in prison that your convictions are unsafe and you are now a free man. What happened to you from that moment? Well, can I take you back just a little bit? Because we got released on bail because of the Thames Valley Police report. And we were out on bail for a year before the appeal came up. We were released three days before Christmas. And that, that's quite unusual, isn't it? Because I know myself, even though the Criminal Case Review Commission had referred my own case back to the Court of Appeal, I remained in prison until the very day my appeal started. But in your case, once your case had been referred back to the Court of Appeal, you were released on bail, which is re in a murder case or such magnitude and such a high profile case that is almost unheard of so it was at that point most people would have thought a foregone conclusion well I said to my solicitors I said with all the evidence we've got we should go for bail and they all laughed at me the three solicitors thought I was off my trolley I gotta be honest with you people don't get bail I think there's only one person who ever got bail from the CCRC and I was another miscarriage of justice Guy, an Irishman. I can't remember. I know his name was Patrick, but I can't remember his last name now. Uh, and it was some years ago, but he was an old man on the stick. You know, he was harmless. He couldn't do anything to anybody anyway. And I think they released him because he was in bad health, uh, on bail. With that, with us, I pushed and pushed and pushed. I said, I believe we can get out. And I convinced my lawyers to go for the appeals. He convinced the other two lawyers. And we went in front of a guy called Justice Hooper. Now, Justice Super said, this case has all the hallmarks of a miscarriage of justice case. I'm releasing these three men on uh, on, uh, on bail with a £5,000 assurity. Well, I was sitting in my cell. It was quarter to six in the night on the day we went for the bail. And I thought, oh, no, I can't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, Phil Parry from the TV programme, who'd done a documentary on this, went on, went on the radio and said, the news agent three are going to be released first thing in the morning on bail pending the new uh, uh, appeal. I would, all the doors are updated. Everybody was screaming and shouting. Michael Bryan's going home tomorrow. I was banging the door. We were, oh, I just, I never slept that night. I never slept at all. I just listened to music, listening to the radio. I remember opening up the door at six o'clock. The prison officers wasn't happy. And I can remember saying to the prison officers, because they were all on the stairs, they were in Gartree Prison, and the governor came over because they all knew I was going to be released in the morning. I said, see you lot. Remember all the, treat the bad treatment you've given me? I said, wait till I write my book, The Death of Justice. I said, I promise you this now, I'm going to expose you people for what you are. And I walked away. And uh, it felt really, really good, you know, knowing that I was going home sometime tomorrow. I didn't know when. And it wasn't until four o'clock the next day that I went home. But it's an interesting thing which happened. A couple of weeks before I went and got bail, they were giving out tellies in Gartree Prison. And this one prison officer said to me, well, you're not getting one, O'Brien. You're always giving us grief. I said, I'll buy my own fucking tellies when I get out on bail. You know what I mean? That's, you know, I, that was the first thing which came out of my mouth. I was that so sure we were going to get bail. And I thought, oh, Mike, why you shouldn't have said that. Why did you say that? What happens if you don't get bail? He's going he's gonna to laugh at you. Anyway. The, to cut a long story short, the last person I seen on the way out was this officer with the tellies. And I went, I told you I can buy my own fucking tellies, didn't I? <laughs> Bye. I walked just, out the just, you just before you walk <laughs> out of that prison, I want you to just because when we when we hear about prisons today, prison cells, there's often conversations about the luxury of prison cells. Now, you and I were in prison during a period where there weren't televisions, there weren't toilets in most places. Just briefly, Michael, describe to me the sort of cell that you were kept in, how you visualise a prison cell as opposed to what people think it's really like. Just describe the prison cell in the various prisons that you were in over the years that you were in prison and how long you spent in those cells. Well, prison, prisons, it's, it's like a, I, I call them a hole in the wall. That's what I call them, the, the prison cells, because that's what it is, a hole in the wall. And you're allowed out certain times every day, you know, and, you know, you've got a basic bed in there with a mattress, uh, 
well, if you can call it a mattress, it's bloody rock hard. That's what I can remember. Uh, the bedding is awful. You know what I mean? Um, it was like green. I can remember the. Do you remember the green duvets we used to have with the little holes in them? Is that what you call it? Yeah, a duvet? Yeah. You're talking about the holes in these green pieces of cloth. Yeah, right? and uh, itchy as anything, like you know, very uncomfortable. You know, uh, we used to have a table, a chair, and if you were lucky, like I think in Gashi, they did have toilets in there, if I remember right. Not all the cells. I know in Long Latin they still to this day they haven't got no. None of that. And when I was in there, the, people say about PlayStations and all this. What people got to remember is this. The prison system has changed, and yet there are PlayStations and stuff like that in prison. But you have got uh, a charter, and you've got to follow that charter for good behavior. And if you step out of line to say one thing wrong, then it gets all, all of it can be taken off you within a matter of minutes. And... I think there should be an incentive scheme in, in in some respects because I've seen both sides of the coin. I, I've seen prison officers do bad things. I've seen inmates do bad things. If you're gonna if you're gonna lock somebody up in a cell for twenty four hours a day and give him nothing, he's gonna be one angry young man. And when he comes out, who's he gonna take it out on? Probably his next victim. You know. So I'm all for rehabilitation and for prisoners and. I think people get it the wrong impression. It's like every time I see, every Christmas in my local paper, Cardiff Prison, they're having um, turkey, this, that, and the other, and it looks brilliant, the menu, until you see the food. Or taste it. And the potatoes got more, yeah, well, the potatoes got more eyes than what me and you've got. <laughs> you've got four, I've got four, so do you know what I mean? So, and that's the truth of it, you know, all black and the, 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 the cabbage is boiled, uh, all the goodness is taken out of it. But when you see the menu, and that's given to the Sun newspaper, and they're going, they're, they're eating better than the old age pensioners who can't even afford a Christmas meal. That really gets to me, really gets to me, because that isn't reality. But that's because we know what the, we know what the food is like. Your convictions are quashed. I, I, well, you're on bow. You go back to the Court of Appeal. Your convictions are quashed, right? Just talk me through what happened there. Well, you know... Um, after hearing all the evidence, three minutes it took for, um, for the Court of Appeal to say we're quashing a conviction and we'll give a reason in the new year uh, why we've quashed the convictions. But we feel they're unsafe, unsatisfactory, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they never say you're innocent, as you know yourself. You know what I mean? But um, when I quashed the conviction, I did ask them one question. I said, don't you think I, I, I'm owed an apology for what has been done to me? And they all looked at each other. I started having ranting and raving at the the, the judges then, and Michael Mansfield had to pull me out. And I said words to the effect, you sit there in judgment and you don't do anything. You don't apologize. I went right off on one. And the headlines the next morning were when I come out of, um, after I come out of the Court of Appeal was, Mr. O'Brien has got his reputation intact, but not his temper, you know. But I wanted an apology. <laughs> and all you could see is a very sombre Mr. O'Brien, you know, with the eyes like that sort of thing, you know. Ooh, I was really you know, wound up because they wouldn't apologise to me. I thought they would. And I thought I'd ask them for it. I thought I'd, I deserved it. And it wasn't forthcoming. Did you ever get one? I got an apology 34 years later. In nineteen uh, in, in 2020, Matt Jukes, the, who was the then Chief Constable of South Wales Police, wrote to my MP after my MP had contacted him, saying, don't you think it's time Mr O'Brien had an apology for what an, an acknowledgement that he was a mi- victim of a miscarriage of justice? And actually, I got it. I was so pleased to get that letter. I was so overwhelmed because I never thought that I would ever get it. But I did get on with the, the, the new chief constable, believe it or not, for the simple fact was when he reopened my case, he was always open and honest with me. You know, when he did the investigation to try and get the witnesses charged, this police officer who lied, it was the CPS who stopped it from going any further. He done everything he could. And there was a bit of mutual respect on both sides because he done all he could. And I knew he done all he could. He done all the investigations. He put all the evidence there. And the CPS and all their wonderful wisdom decided there was no evidence to charge anyone. I don't know how they come to that decision. I think the police were quite surprised as well. But what could they do? Their hands were tied. And this is 
This is you trying to get those who were responsible for your miscarriage of justice, including the police officer, uh, uh, held accountable for the evidence, the misleading evidence that led to your conviction. This is your attempts at getting these people held accountable during the years that you've been out of prison and cleared of the crime you didn't commit. Yeah, absolutely. I even took the CPS to court. I took them to the high court uh, sometime in 20, uh, 2009, trying to get this officer charged with perjury. And again, in all their wisdom, they said there wasn't enough evidence and the CPS were right not to charge him. Well, I've just wrote a book called The Dossier, which is, is, is out with Siren. And I have put all his criminal history in my book from 1982 right up to 2016 you know, all, all the miscarriages of justices which have occurred in Wales and some of the cases he's been involved in, and there is a pattern of behaviour for a number of years with this officer. I invited South Wales Police to sue me if what I'm saying is untrue, or this police officer. I, I, I still can't hear anything, Raphael. Do you know what I mean? I still can't hear anything. So why is that then? If I'm wrong, why haven't they tried to sue me and tried to stop me? Let me ask you this, Michael. Your convictions are quashed now. You're you're a free man. Why has it been a, a mission of yours to keep pursuing the wrong that they've done rather than just get on with your life and just live your life? And what has your life been like since you had your convictions overturned? Have you been able to sort of rebuild your life uh, and move forward? To a degree, you know. I, I, unfortunately, I had further tragedy in 2012, which knocked me for six, I lost my son to a genet- genetic disorder, a rare genetic disorder, and he was two and a half years of age. You know, I was ma- I got married and everything was okay, but then when I lost my son, everything went pear shaped. The marriage went, and it was difficult for me to get. I, I didn't think I was going to recover, to be honest with you. But and I wrote a book about Dylan as well and what happened, and the hospital apologized for what they did. You know, they accepted liability, even though uh, you know I set up a charity to help other people who were in a similar situation. I done some positive things like that. And even today, you know what I mean? Um, I still suffer from like post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm still on medication and I'm still seeing a psychiatrist, but I have got some sort of life, you know what I mean? Cause I'm helping other people. The one thing I do, which do bug me is I want the real killer found in the Philip Saunders case for the victim's family. I can't say no more than that at this stage because there's, you know, I've been involved in another documentary, as you well know, and I can't divulge any information. But I do want justice for the victim's family. That has been one of my big issues because if that was my loved one, I would want justice. You know, they've been lied to in relation to myself. I believe that they believed all these years that we were the ones responsible. I find that hard to swallow. You know, so the only way I can prove to everybody is to catch the real killer. So we're singing from the same hymn book. We want the real person caught. What's your life been like since you've been out, Michael? I mean, we talk about you talked about the post-traumatic stress that that you suffered as a result of your wrongful imprisonment. You talk about campaigning to try and get those who were responsible for that held to account. But pushing that aside, what is what have you been able to achieve? Because you mentioned you've written a couple of books. And those books have no doubt been about your wrongful conviction or your your quest to get those responsible held to account. But tell me a little bit about what your life has been like in the, what is it, 20 years since you've been out of prison? Because as we talk now, I'm bringing you back. But in those 20 years, what has your life been like? And I'm sorry to hear that you lost another child in years after you got out of prison. It's just so sad. I'm a strong character, uh, to be honest with you. He stood me in good stead. I don't know where I get the strength from. I think it was from my mother. My mother was an amazing person who helped to get me out. She was only a little dut, but by Christ, she had some fire in her belly. And she must have passed it you know, through the genes to me because I certainly took up the baton when I had to. Uh, out of the three of us, out of Elisha with Daniel and um, myself, I was at, always at the forefront. And even now, I'm still at the forefront because... I'm trying to get justice. I'm not trying to get justice just for myself, though. I, I must say, I'm trying to get justice for all the victims of miscarriages of justice in Wales, because there's been a number of them. The Darvell brothers, the Cardiff Three, you know, these are known miscarriages of justice cases. Annette Hewins, the Merthyr girls, they were wrongly convicted. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. And same officers involved in the same cases. And you could see the overlap, you know, same barristers, same judges, same QCs, defence counsel. 
and there should be a judicial inquiry. And this is what I'd like to see, you know, for everybody, because there's so many victims here. It's not just the miscarriages of justice victims I'm looking at, like myself. I'm not that selfish. Do you know what I mean? That's not what I'm about. The victim's family are important to me in each and every one of these cases because they have, they're the primary victims in all these cases. We mustn't lose sight of that. And I've never lost sight of that. And nobody is fighting for them. So the only person who can fight for them is somebody like me who's got a voice in the radio, television, newspapers because of my profile in Wales. And I try to use it to the best effect I can to get justice for them. And it, it, it is about them, not so much about me. I don't like, i got to be honest with you, I don't like talking about my story. I think my story's, you know, done and dusted. But the other cases, no, not at all. You know what I mean? I will help. When I see a miscarriage of justice, I feel compelled to try and do something and right that wrong because I got the expertise to do it. And I've been there, done it, got the T-shirt like yourself. It's it's admirable that, that you are in that position and that you use that experience, that insight, that knowledge, that, that burning desire to fight for other victims who have had their convictions overturned or haven't. But But it does raise the question how how that must eat away at who you are as a person being able to move on because I, as a miscarriage of justice victim, know that my direction has been um, twofold. You know, I do what I can. Speaking to you right now is one of those things, but I've also had a, a successful career as a journalist. I've I've looked in different directions, and although my work is is centred around social justice, injustice, crime and justice, etc., the, the space is very different depending on the story that I'm doing, but it does make me raise the question, Michael, how can you move on and live your life and enjoy your life if you still have this deep burning desire to fight miscarriages, if not your own because you were successful, other people, does that allow you to move on in your life and find that sort of peace? Because every other conversation you have is still around what you've been living with for the last 30, 35 years. Well, I'm probably more at peace with myself now than what I've ever been, believe it or not. You know, when I write my books, it has been good therapy for me, as well as helping people. You know, I have, I, I'm, I'm an award-winning author. I've won four award, international awards for my first two books, The Death of Justice and Prisons Exposed. You know, it's, it's little on me from Ely, do you know what I mean, from the council estate. And I've won four awards. I won, I've won awards for my charity work. I trained as a TV presenter, just like you have. I've got certificates in radio presenting. I've changed the law six times, maybe seven, I think, altogether. I made legal history. I've made my mark, you know, and all these things. If I was well enough to do a solicitor's job, that's what I would have probably gone into. If I was a bit younger, you know, I am 55 this year. I do forget that sometimes because my brain says I'm still 22, you know. I think we all feel like we've been in prison. You know, our, our mind's younger than what our body tells us we are. So, you know, I've done some positive things, you know. Uh, the TV presenting course, I've got a show reel. I could, there's loads of things I could do if I wanted to do it. If those opportunities came along, then I'd probably look at it. I've been asked to be a politician. I've been asked to stand for two political parties. Uh, I won't name them because I don't think it's fair. But I, I've been asked to, to stand as, as a councillor, as an MP. I've had some really good opportunities come my way. But my main priority at the moment, because I'm a single dad, uh, I'm looking after my, my son, you know, Dayton, who's 10 now, and he's got special needs, you know, ADHD he's got, and he's got a rare chromosome disorder like his brother had. I have to focus on him. So what I do, I, fo I do everything around Dayton and do what I can, where I can. And I'm quite happy with my life at the moment because I seem to be making a difference to people. When, when you see the amount of messages I get from people and when you see cases being dropped because – I act as a Mackenzie friend sometimes in the family courts. I'll give an example. I went to court a couple of uh, years ago, and I managed to get this woman to see her children after five years. They were up for adoption. We got the social worker sacked because she was putting all stuff on Facebook, all false allegations against the family, and she's just now started seeing her children after five years. To me, that means so much to me, you know, that we got justice for her because she shouldn't have had the kids taken off her in the first place. And now they're, they, they're near enough agreeing that this shouldn't have happened. So I'm writing things in the family courts as well as the criminal courts. 
And I, you know, I've acted as the appropriate adult for young young men who's been in the police station. The last case I did, which was a while ago, the person confessed in the car to the crime to the police officer, and I said to the police officer, "Have you made a contemporaneous record of that note, Miss? You know, officer?" He went, "No." I said, "Well, it's inadmissible, and you've got to release the man." And he said, "What do you mean?" I said, "It's O'Brien, Sherwood, and Hall." I said, "It's my case." The solicitor who was in with me just stood there and said nothing, and I was the appropriate adult, so. He got the charge dropped against him. And to me, that was a result for him. And he, he, hasn't, he hasn't committed a crime since. He's, he's got his life together. And, I, and the, I'm still in contact with this person. He's rebuilt his life. And um, he hasn't looked back. So, I mean, all these positive things with the youngsters I can do. And, I mean, gives me such satisfaction. You know, if I can steer one or two, two of these children, you know, these, these kids away from crime and go down the right path and show them what I did was wrong. And this is the right path now I'm on. I want you to join me. That's great. That, that's more than any money could ever buy you. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, that's how I feel. What have you told your son, Dayton? I mean, he's 10 years old. Have you been able to sit him down and explain to him the journey you've been through? I have to a degree, you know, bearing in mind that he's got special needs. He knows I was wrongfully imprisoned. He knows there was a bad police officer. Uh, he, he knows his name. He calls him some, uh, somebody the liar, he calls him. You know, his first name and the liar. Uh, and he knows, and I've explained to him. And I, but I, I, one thing that I have said to him, you have to respect that not all police officers are bad. I didn't want him bringing him up to think that all police officers are bad. You've got to hate them. I don't believe in all that, you know, because I've got no bitterness towards the police now, or anybody, even the people who give false evidence against me. I could probably have a cup of tea with them now and say, well, okay, you're put in an awkward position. Let's have a cup of tea. Let's shake hands and move up. Move up. That's how far I've moved on, you know, and, and that takes a big man to do that sometimes because the easiest thing is to say, right, then I'm going to punch your face in for you then to me. Come here, go over here. And when I first come out, I probably would have done that, you know. So I think I've come a long way. And you have to let go of the uh, of the bitterness. If you don't let go of that bitterness, that's what eats you away. And that's why I'm so focused on what I'm doing. And, I, and I'm probably, you know, I don't want to blow my own trumpet or any, say I'm good at what I do, but I know what I'm doing. Like, you know what you're doing as a journalist. Because we've got that experience and we can share it with other people, then we, we, we're making a difference in our field. And to me... Although I'm not getting paid for any of the work I do, I don't t- I don't charge anything even for the for the talks I do and whatever. It's not about money; it's about doing the right thing and you know helping others. And, and that's what it's all about with me, like you know. And people who know me and are close to me, you know, know that I'm a genuine person and I care. And and just going back to the very first question uh, about being accused of a murder you didn't commit. What's that like? What is it like being accused of something you didn't do? Being accused by somebody of being involved in something that they know you didn't do? Being accused by the police of making a false confession? There's a number of accusations. Um, What's that like, Michael, being accused of something you didn't do? It's one of the worst feelings in your life. How can I put it? I'll never forget the mental state it got me into. I mean, I was so shocked, horrified. Uh, I didn't think these things went on. Uh, I didn't think the police did things like this. i got to be honest with you, I was very naive. You know, I I used to believe that, the you know, if the police arrested you, there must have been a reason for it and things like that. Well, obviously, I know different now. And uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is how far I've come. I remember... Back in the day, I used to believe in the death penalty, shocking as it may seem. But until this happened to me, uh, and I, and it opened all up, I just didn't know, you know. And I've wrote a book now on the, you know, the death penalty in Texas and all that. And I've come full circle because sometimes this is the truth. This is unless things like this touch you in, in your life or your family's life, you are oblivious to what's going on around you. And it's only when it touches you that you realise, oh, my days, I've got this wrong. And sometimes you've got to go through these experiences before you can come out a better person. And I think I'm a better person now than what I've ever been because I will help anybody. I'm no, nobody's fool, but in the same token, if a miscarriage of justice have occurred, 
there's been a recent breakthrough. I don't know whether you're aware of this at the moment in the Michael Stone case, uh, which came out yesterday. And I mean, I was one of the first ones many years ago. I know his sister Barbara, and I knew that that case was wrong all those years ago. And that's the thing I, I strive for, to get these cases noticed in the media, hoping the journalists like yourself might take it up and do a documentary or do something. And then maybe, maybe you know, these people can get their names cleared as well. So I'm always going to be doing this. And it's important. I mean, the Michael Stone case you're talking about, he, he was um, convicted of the, um, the Russell murders, wasn't he? And this other guy who's yes. been convicted of other crimes has now confessed to those murders. So after 15, 16 years, or, or it might be longer than that, um, there are questions about who did or didn't do that. But look, that's another case. Let, let me ask you this as my final question. Being wrongly accused of the murder and robbery that you didn't commit, you've turned that table, Michael, over the years, and you have become the accuser because you accused the police of fabricating evidence like the confession. How do you feel about that, that the table's turned because you now accuse the system of wronging you? What, what do you say to that? Well, I always base everything, all my arguments on evidence. You know what I mean? I want to stress this. I am not anti-police. I don't go after the police on particular cases unless I know I've got the evidence or I believe a victim of a miscarriage of justice have occurred. You know, I'm very, very meticulous in, in that sense. I don't believe everybody's innocent, you know? I mean, I've had people trying to pull the wool over my eyes quite recently and I got annoyed with them because I, I worked on a case for four months trying to get the documents off. And when I seen the documents and read the reports, and there was DNA evidence which linked this person to the crime, and there was no doubt in my mind that they'd done it, but they couldn't accept it, I get very annoyed, you know? So I have got to weed out the people who I feel are trying to pull the wool over my eyes. And as I said, uh, I've been at this for 34 years now. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no mug, you know what I mean? And if I'm not sure about a case, I will say I'm not sure, if I if I look at all the evidence and I see a pattern of behaviour, like in my case, with a confession, corroborating a confession, a prison snitch, you know, alarm bells start ringing straight away and think, hang on a minute, why did they use these unsavoury people against X, Y and Z? Well, look, they've got no evidence. So they had no choice to use these. So therefore, you start looking at it from that point of view. Did they have deals with the police to get off on lesser charges? If the answer is yes... I will criticise that police force in that particular case. Like in the Jeremy Bamber case, who got wrongly convicted, in my opinion, of murdering his whole family. You know, I believe he's innocent. I've been called deluded. I've been called all sorts, you know. But I won't waver because I've seen the evidence. And once you look at the evidence, that determines where you go with that particular case. And yes, I have said people have are, are, are been guilty of crimes and they tried to make out they were innocent. I will not touch them cases with a bad one. I'm not interested, I, not that I judge people, but I do get annoyed when people waste my time when I'm trying to look out for the innocent. You know, I don't judge people and say, well, oh, you're guilty, you're a bad person. No, but if you come to me and say you're innocent and I take you on face value and I investigate your case and I find out you're lying to me, I've got every reason to be cross. And I got every reason to be annoyed. And that's a, and, th and that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Absolutely. Because you and I were in that position where where we were telling people we were innocent, and and they took on our cases, and lo and behold, we were innocent. But um, it's a real double-edged sword because when people don't believe you and you know you're innocent, it's a hard one. But let me just move this on a little bit and ask you, what does the future hold for you, Michael? I mean, you've been living your life, you've been doing what you've been doing, and you've been describing some of the cases you've been involved in trying to help people. But what does the future hold? You've written two books, you're living your life, you're, you're, you're dedicating your time, obviously, to bringing your son up. What, what do you hope is around the corner or what are you striving for? What do you want next? Well, what, what I'd like to see, you know, I, I'd like to, I'd like to see, you know, a lot of the cases I've been involved in. I'd like to, to bear some fruit now, you know, more than anything. And then maybe I could retire at an early age, you know, like 60 or something like that, you know. I mean, I've been working on some cases for 20 odd years, like, you know, and some are going to get referred back to the court of appeal and some might not make it. I, I, I do not know, but I know one thing, you know, I'm starting to enjoy life a bit now. Uh, as before, I wasn't. Until I had my son, I mean, he's opened up a different world for me, you know what I mean? And I've got to attend to his needs. And just being a father is priceless, you know what I mean? You can't put a price on 
my, my little boy when he comes home from school, oh, I've missed you, Daddy. You know, all these little things mean a lot to me, you know, and that, he's my world. And everything else goes around Dayton, you know what I mean? He's number one and always will be, you know. So I don't know what the future holds in in, in, in every respect. I'm, I'm, I'm going to write some more books. I'm writing a book on joint enterprise at the moment because I feel that law needs to be tackled. There's not one book out there. Uh, there's a there's a few groups out there, you know. Jengba do a lot of good work, you know. Uh, you know, Jan Jan is brilliant. Jan Cuncliffe, you know what I mean. She does a lot of good work, but the fact remains, we need a book out there. We need these politicians to start listening to these campaign groups and saying, "Listen, we've got to change the system." And the only way we're going to change the system is by you know being part of that system to a degree and move forward together. And that's the only way we can do it. If it means I got to write uh, another three or four books, then so be it. But as long as something good comes out of that, because I'm not interested in making money over my books, I'll be honest with you, you know. I'm not J.K. Rowling, although I did beat her once. In, in, um, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, the prison's exposed. Um, I won a competition, somebody, you know, an international competition, uh, and they voted my book better than hers. Well, I was shocked. Do you know what I mean? And uh, yes, <laughs> and I went on a TV radio station, talking a radio station talking about it. And I said, how did you beat J.K. Rowling? I said, I don't know. You get, you know, Public and a, f- a fickle bench, who knows? You know, so, you know, look, looking back from that, you know, uh, I'm always a positive person. I do get my down days. I do find it difficult to cope with life sometimes, but I never give up. And that's such an important point, isn't it? Because you said at the beginning of this interview that when you first went to prison, you struggled to read and write. Um, and now you're a best selling author. And were those skills developed in the years that you were in prison and when you got out of prison? Where did you develop the skills to become such an accomplished writer? And that's, you know, inspirational for anybody listening to this who who wants to take on the challenge of writing a book. They've got to believe in themselves, right? Well, i got to be fair. When I was in Gatsby Prison, there was a lovely woman called Pat. I can't remember her last name, but she was a brilliant teacher, an old English teacher, and she taught me well. And I took everything in what she said to me, and I and I said to her one one day uh, I'll do something with all the work I've done here, and I hope if she does see this podcast, she'll realise how far I've come because she gave me the the, the self belief. You know what I mean? That was part of it. Then I went to college then and got my A levels in law. You know what I mean? And I didn't think I'd ever do that. I've been to Glamorgan University twice. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, studying for a de- for a degree, and then I got my A level. Um, I passed my exams to do with the radio presenting course, etc. I mean, I never would have done all these things. There's a lot of positives that come out of my wrongful imprisonment, and a lot of things uh, I'm grateful for. And sometimes you've got to take the good out of the bad and go forward because if you don't, you'll fall to the wayside. I could have been an alcoholic now, and nobody would blame me, would they? I could, I could, I could be taking cocaine now, and not being funny. I could be taking cocaine now, drinking myself to death, and people will go, "Oh, poor old Michael! Look what happened to him." Sorry, I don't do the poor me. I'm too strong for that, and that's why I bounce back. And this is why I help people, and this is what it's all about: other people. Brilliant, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for sharing your story. No, you're welcome. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you. As a victim of a miscarriage of justice myself, I can identify with a lot of what Michael shared with us on this episode. I also met and filmed with Michael for a new documentary series I'll be presenting in the next few months. Watch this space for more details. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share it with your friends, family and colleagues. To follow this podcast, just click on the subscribe button. Help me promote this podcast by telling us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments and a star rating. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this to share people's stories and give a voice to the voiceless. Please support our work to pay for the production of this podcast by making a donation or buy me a coffee by clicking on the support links at the end of the show notes. If you want to connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. 
Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.